An architectural historian, Maureen Meister is the author of Architect and the Arts and Crafts Movement in Boston, Harvard's H. Langford Warren, and she was volume editor of H. H. Richardson, The Architect, His Peers, and Their Era. Her PhD is from Brown, and she has taught for many years at area institutions. There we go, one of those devices. It's early on. Um, Maureen is also a member here at the Athenaeum and has studied collections here, including the sketchbooks and notebooks of R. Clipston Sturgis, whom you may hear about this afternoon. Uh, she's here today to discuss her book, published in 2014, Arts and Crafts Architecture, History and Heritage in New England. Uh, the first, in fact, to address that subject. Reviewers have called it invaluable and praised it as a useful illustrated guide. The Boston Society of Architects says it's full of sensitive descriptions as well as being a story of ideas. While the Library Journal called Meister's fascinating look as finely crafted and detailed as the work it explores, um, delighting both scholars and enthusiasts, and that it should be found in libraries with a concentration of decorative arts, architecture, and architectural history. So it's no surprise that her book and Maureen are here today. Please join me in welcoming her. Wow. What a terrific crowd. I'm so pleased. Thank you for coming. And thank you, Mary. And I also want to thank Victoria O'Malley and uh, welcome you all. How is the sound in the back? Okay? Okay. And let me know if it fades for some reason. Um, to begin, so people often want to know, well, how, why did this book come about? So uh, uh, just a comment or two on how it came about. Uh, it is an outgrowth of the last book that I published about the architect Herbert Langford Warren. I've become quite fond of Warren, uh, who is significant for um, three different reasons from three different perspectives. Uh, first of all, he is a member, he was a member of the uh, firm of H.H. H. Richardson. He was uh, the chief draftsman for Richardson for many years. Uh, and so he uh, was a vehicle for exploring the impact of Richardson and um, the next generation. In the 1890s, maybe even more important, uh, he founded the architecture program at Harvard, today's GSD Graduate School of Design. Uh, and then in 1897, uh, he helped found the Society of Arts and Crafts. He was one of its founders and became its president in 1903, serving as president for the rest of his life. He could not get out of this role um, and served as president until 1917 when he died. Uh, his primary uh, mission, as well as the uh, mission, uh, or his role, or his, uh, his raison d'etre, his uh, interest in working with the society, was to uh, promote the collaboration between architects and craftsmen. The artisans who carved the stone and wood worked in the metal and glass uh, for the buildings that he and his colleagues designed. After publishing that book, I wanted to learn more about the larger circle of architects who were involved in the arts and crafts movement in New England and how they expressed arts and crafts ideas in their buildings. This had never been explored in any published work. Many of you, if you're here, have uh, studied architectural history at some time or another, have read maybe a survey book or two about the history of American architecture. And you can um, agree with me that Boston gets a nice press, good a number of pages in those books uh, in the 18, uh, for its uh, buildings from the 1870s and 80s. Trinity Church is always in these books. 
authors will devote quite a bit of attention to H.H. H. Richardson and his career, Trinity Church from 1872 to 77, seen for its truly uh, great importance to the um, uh, character of American architecture uh, in the, let's say, third quarter uh, of the 19th century. Uh, beyond that, uh, we then turn the few pages, right, and then we start hearing about uh, uh, the Boston Public Library from the 1880s, designed by Charles McKim uh, in partnership with, uh, in the partnership of McKim, Mead, and White, uh, 1887, uh, completed in 1898. So you've got one of these books on American architecture. Keep turning the pages, and where are we next? We leave Boston, and the standard narrative takes us to Chicago. Yes. So now we're in Chicago, and the chapter on the turn of the 20th century will focus on the emergence of the skyscraper in Chicago and the emergence of Frank Lloyd Wright. Here you see Roby House. Many of you have probably visited it, uh, designed by Wright, dating from 1909. This um, segment of Wright's career, I would say early 20th century, also has its place in the studies that have been done on the arts and crafts um, movement and architecture in the United States. Uh, absolutely a valid perspective. Roby House, Wright's work of the early 20th century, has arts and crafts uh, ideas behind it. And you will also read a fair amount about Gustav Stickley, uh, his magazine, The Craftsman's, um, something many people are familiar with, and he published uh, Houses in the Craftsman. So Stickley in New York and New Jersey is another aspect of this story of the arts and crafts architecture in the United States. And then if you've been to uh, Southern California, Pasadena, you'll uh, encounter the work of Green and Green, and they too have a nice place in the history now of American architecture and the role um, of the arts and crafts movement in American architecture. So all justifiably associated with the movement, no question about that. Yet Boston's arts and crafts architects and arts and crafts architecture from the turn of the 20th century deserves recognition. Boston's architecture is especially important for its direct response to the English arts and crafts movement. Boston's arts and crafts leaders knew the English leaders very well, and the Boston architects embraced English designs and English values. So what was the arts and crafts movement? First and foremost, it was about ideas. It developed in 19th century England in response to the Industrial Revolution. In particular, the harsh conditions for the factory workers, as well as the cheap, mass-produced goods that were proliferating. You may recognize John Ruskin here on the screen, who is a seminal figure for English arts and crafts theory. Uh, he was a prolific writer and lecturer. But it was William Morris, really, who we, I think, see most closely associated with the uh, theory behind the English arts and crafts movement. Both Ruskin and Morris believed pre-industrial times provided a better way of life for most people. Times when craftsmen, tradesmen, experienced joy in their labors. Now, we have to acknowledge this is an idealized view, 
was it really all that happy, merry um, in a time in the Middle Ages? I would suspect uh, it wasn't always so joyful. But relative to what they were seeing in mid-19th century England with more and more workers moving into, laborers moving into factories, we can appreciate that medieval pre-industrial times uh, looked like a much happier period. In particular, uh, they looked back to the Middle Ages and idealized medieval um, art and architecture. They admired England's Gothic churches, and what they, they especially appreciated the fact that these churches were collaborative efforts, efforts that involved both the architects and the craftsmen working together. The buildings, the Gothic buildings, were enriched by artisans who were stone and wood carvers, metalsmiths, and glass workers. Different, slightly different concept. Ruskin and Morris also liked the Middle Ages, especially English medieval architecture, because they considered it native, native to England. Now, this might seem harder for us to embrace or imagine, but what they looked at, when they saw the architecture of Georgian England, they saw it as neoclassical, and that the origins of neoclassical architecture came from the Mediterranean world, the world of Greece and Rome. They, and by contrast, then, the uh, Gothic architecture of England was seen as springing from English soil. So this was another aspect of the movement, embracing one's own um, generally 19th century concept and embracing one's national identity, and for Ruskin and Morris to embrace uh, Gothic architecture as English architecture. By the early 1860s, Morris and several of his friends took action and they formed a company that fostered the work of craftsmen and sold their products. Within a short time, many English architects were involved in the same uh, mission, uh, embracing or working with uh, English uh, craftsmen to help them embellish their buildings. Uh, this is an example. It's the um, Church of the Holy Angels uh, in Horcross, Staffordshire, the uh, design of George Frederick Bodley, 1871 to 76. So we're in the early 1870s here, and Bodley does patronize Morris's firm, Morris and Company, uh, to supply them with stained glass so, uh, and other decorative aspects of the church. So this is a good example of the ideas of Engli English arts and crafts ideas uh, from the, uh, they're taking, taking hold. They're not, fully developed at this point, but they're definitely manifest uh, in um, this collaboration of the early 1870s. By the late 1880s, uh, an Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society was formed, and they began, uh, they ran their first exhibition in 1888. And this is the source of the term Arts and Crafts. So the term itself is English, and it comes from a very specific time and a very specific organization. Uh, it's this Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, 1888, the first exhibition. So let's put it in its place and understand this is how it begins. Now, several individuals paved the way for an arts and crafts movement here in Boston. The most important, I don't think we can have any contest on this, the most important figure of all was Charles Eliot Norton, uh, who you see here on the screen. Now, I generally favored photographs for my book of people, men and a few women um, as mature individuals. So this is, this is mature Norton. But um, the Norton, most people would have remembered later on. But uh, when he was a very young man uh, in the 1850s, uh, while traveling overseas, he befriended both Ruskin and Morris. 1850s, 
So this is right at the beginning of these ideas are just starting. Ruskin and Morris, um, they're both very young men. Um, Norton's a very young man. Um, he was born in 1827, so that'll give you the sense of it. We're talking about, uh, I don't know if I should say kids, but they're, they're all, they're young, they're young together. And they correspond, and they maintain their correspondence. And I have to say, neither Ruskin nor Morris ever came to this side of the Atlantic. But Norton um, is back in England and on the continent, where he maintains these, uh, these friendships uh, and nurtures them through the years. He shared their concern, which even, by, uh, even in the middle of the 19th century uh, was uh, pr quite pronounced, their concern about the conditions in the factories. Uh, he saw Manchester. He saw, he was appalled by what he saw, and um, he started writing about it. He also uh, came to appreciate the Middle Ages, uh, following the example of Ruskin, and late, later it would be uh, Morris. And um, he admired them for their architecture, but also for their social structure, uh, for the p social structure of the period. Now, moving forward many years later, in 1874, uh, Norton was offered a job to teach the, um, the history, it was fine arts it was called, but the history of art at Harvard. And he becomes um, the first recognized professor of art history in the United States. This is, this is his platform, Harvard. And the courses actually are not just um, for Harvard students. They are audited. Um, Isabella Stewart Gardner is well known as an auditor in um, Norton's classes. Um, Langford Warren, he had his academic training in, and his uh, architecture training in England. But he um, also enrolled and took Norton's class. Uh, Norton's classes were very popular, uh, huge, in fact. And he was uh, much beloved by the students. So he became extremely influential through his teaching in Boston. So I want to give the main um, credit really to Norton. He's the one who deserves it. Uh, but there's certainly justifiably, we can give some credit to the emergence of arts and crafts ideas here in Boston and the contact between uh, Boston and, um, and the English theorists to Henry Hobson Richardson, who you may recognize here on the um, screen. Um, he contributed in many important ways to an arts and crafts ethos and to the linkage, really direct linkage, uh, to English arts and the English arts and crafts leaders. Uh, you know that he um, developed this distinctive interpretation of Romanesque architecture, uh, especially through, not solely, but certainly um, especially through his design of Trinity Church. There he collaborated with a large circle of artists and artisans in the ornament, the decoration of Trinity Church. Um, probably Lafarge is best known to you, but in addition to Lafarge, less well known, but extremely important, uh, was the stone carver John Evans. Uh, the porch was added later, so you have to actually go under the porch, and you can see a frieze of sculpture, and that was the work of Evans, um, who also did work, by the way, at New Old South Church, and then later on many, many other major uh, buildings uh, throughout Boston. Boston Public Library, the sculpture you see on the front of the library is uh, the work of John Evans. Um, he would become a founder of the Society of Arts and Crafts in Boston. So um, in the early 1880s, Richardson does go to England, and he meets William Morris there. So he had already been using Morris products, textiles, and recommending Morris products um, to his clients. Uh, but by the early 80s, um, 1882, he travels with his uh, retinue uh, to England and uh, meets with Morris and then maintains the contact with Morris uh, for the remaining of his um, short life. 
So the connections are direct again. Uh, he's there, meets him, and is writing letters and so on back and forth. Uh, there were other architects who contributed to the growing appreciation for the craftsman. Uh, this one is Robert Adams, looks like, uh, Robert Andrews, I'm sorry, looks like he's ready to go out on his boat. And uh, he, um, it's a photograph he submitted to uh, the Tavern Club when he joined. Um, in the early 1890s, at a meeting um, of the Boston Society of Architects, Andrews spoke specifically about the need to reunite architecture with the artistic crafts. So we're talking about early 1890s. This is all the run-up. So we've got Norton, um, we've got Richardson, Andrews, at the Boston Society of Architects meetings. Um, they're talking about how to bring quality craftsmanship and the craftsmen um, into their work. So in 1897, a large arts and crafts exhibition was um, held in Boston. Remember, there was an arts and crafts exhibition society in London. So it's, a, again, they know what's going on. They're back and forth. They're taking their steamships back and forth to England. And they're familiar with what's going on in England. Um, shortly after the exhibition in Boston closed, 1897, the Society of Arts and Crafts was organized. And I should say it is the same society that exists to this day, um, located today on Newbury Street. So it was organized in 1897, and who's elected first president? Charles Eliot Norton. By this point, he's, he's getting along in years, but uh, he's much beloved and he's seen as so influential, they want him as their president, their, their leader. He, he brings prestige to the organization. And he brings ideas to the organization, um, working with them on their mission and um, generally creating uh, a, the general direction for their ideas. Within a few years, uh, once Warren became president of the society, uh, they set up their offices and a um, shop for the crafts products that the craftsmen produced right a few doors down at 9 Park Street. Um, that was the center of the entire arts and crafts movement in New England. It was right over here. So I can't say enough about the fact that they were meeting here. The records of their uh, meetings, uh, as the, um, their governing council would meet uh, time after time, uh, are all now have been transferred to the Fine Arts Department of the Boston Public Library. You can imagine them as you're seeing who's in attendance, sitting around the table, uh, sitting over at 9 Park Street, um, planning the next um, exhibition or whatever. It was one of, the society was one of the earliest groups in the United States. Interestingly, they thought they were the first, who I should add that. Uh, but uh, they were not. There were a few other groups that got going right about this time uh, in um, San Francisco and in uh, Minneapolis, and then later that same uh, fall in uh, Chicago. So we do not want to claim this as the first, um, but it would be the most influential. It would attract the largest membership in the country uh, by the early 1920s with more than 1,000 members. The membership included architects, craftsmen, and also patrons, but it was the architects who provided much of the energy and leadership within the organization. And this was also true in England, I should add, as well. So what characterized the, the buildings of the, um, what characterized the buildings of the architects who were leaders in Boston's Society of Arts and Crafts? The way I defined leaders were the people who either held uh, positions within the um, uh, governing council, there was this director council, or offices, uh, president, vice president, and so on, uh, during the first 20 years of the society's organization. There were 12 in all. Many more architects were members, but I, would, I wanted to see what were the buildings like of these men who, and 
there's a woman, as you'll see. Uh, these people who sat together at the table week after week promoting the Society of Arts and Crafts. What, what, what was consistent? What were the shared values of these individuals? So there were 12 in all who maintained this energy and active, uh, ro these active roles through the first 20 years of the society. Three of them had trained under Richardson, Blankford Warren, whom you now recognize um, on the left, uh, Robert Andrews in the center, ready uh, in his slicker, ready to get on his boat, and then I'm quite fond of Longfellow. It's Alexander Wadsworth Longfellow, Jr. His uncle was the poet, um, Waddy Longfellow on the right. All of them had worked for Richardson. They worked together in the same studio in Brookline um, through the years together. So they were very close, and, and they were truly friends. Three of the architects developed national practices. Ralph Adams Cram on the left, R. Clipston Sturgis in the center, and that's Charles D. McGinnis on the right. Sturgis, whom you see in the center, McGinnis on the right, each at a different point, was president of the American Institute of Architects. These were very well-respected men in their field. Uh, they were president of the AIA, and again, they had large practices. Sturgis is the one in the center whose um, journals he maintained through his entire career. Uh, they're small, about that big, they, quite small, like that. He could put a journal in his pocket, and all of those um, represent his meetings with clients and their sketches as well as notes as he'd meet with clients the way you might imagine even today if you want to make notes and make some sketches, uh, and they're all here at the Athenaeum. They're a terrific resource for anyone who wants to study 19th, early 20th century um, uh, architecture in greater Boston. And again, his projects are uh, very large and important. There's the woman I mentioned, uh, Lois Lily Howe. Lois uh, was the second um, female member admitted to the AIA. She also was a, became a fellow of the American Institute of Architects, a very successful example of a um, woman who, in early stages of uh, female practice in architecture in the country. Several of the architects were prominent in education. Langford Warren at Harvard, founding the architecture program at Harvard. Cram at MIT, he was head of the architecture program in the early 20th century at MIT. On the left, you see C. Howard Walker, who taught both at um, MIT and at the uh, School of the Museum of Fine Arts. And Louis Newhall on the right, who was president of the Boston Architectural Club between 1905 and 1915, and throughout his entire association with the BAC, really nurtured the educational program that they ran, and it evolved eventually into Boston Architectural Center and today's Boston Architectural College. Uh, when he died, he left his, um, his legacy to the BAC, and he's very well um, understood over there as having really gotten them through, especially the Great Depression, um, through the money that he left to them. So Newhall, too, believed very strongly in architectural education, and his influence was extended uh, through that role. The remaining three architects in this group, so active in the Society of Arts and Crafts, include George Barton on the left, who was a partner with um, R. Clipston Sturgis for a period. Um, George Shaw, you see in the center. His firm, you re may recognize the name, Shaw and Hunnewell. And then on the right, William Putnam, whose firm was Putnam and Cox. Now, the architects could be called conservative in terms of the styles that they favored contrasting very certainly with the architects of the Midwest or California. 
Their styles reflected the Bostonians' regard for history, especially the heritage of New England. Their models were English Gothic, Georgian, and the Anglo-Colonial. Key word here is Anglo, or key phrase there, Anglo-Colonial architecture. Their designs were marked by restraint. Uh, the mission that Charles Eliot Norton put forth was that they would, the society would encourage sobriety and restraint. So Boston, I love it, sobriety and restraint. We are not getting up. Nothing radical here. And they would embellish their buildings with fine ornament, the work of the craftsmen in the Society of Arts and Crafts. Yet the architects did not consider themselves conservative. They considered themselves, or meaning backward looking, they considered themselves modern. They were very much committed. They were trained, they were many of them involved in architectural education. They were designing buildings for the 20th century, buildings that were new building types, uh, new, that would incorporate new, um, the latest technologies. So then the question, how did the buildings of these architects represent a shared vision? The late 1880s, early 1890s, not surprisingly, are, is a transition period. Richardson died in 1886, and for a few years, the Boston architects continued to emulate him. Here you recognize perhaps Cambridge City Hall, the work of Longfellow in partnership with Alden and Harlow, dating from 1888. Romanesque, meaning it has those very large round arches, the, um, the weighty treatment of the masonry, uh, the tower to me has a little bit of um, the Allegheny um, County Courthouse in Pittsburgh, uh, which Longfellow, Alden, and Harlow had worked on. Um, their, the connections are direct. I mean, they came out of the studio. They were Richardson's right hands and left hand, um, and they knew how to do room, uh, Richardsonian Romanesque. It also has a lot of that embellishment uh, that Richardson uh, was already promoting. But by the early 1890s, the architects abandoned Richardsonian designs. The belief had taken hold that what they really should be doing was affirming the region's English heritage. Also, remember that Boston architects were traveling regularly to England. They were meeting with their English colleagues, their English counterparts, English architects. And several of the architects in Boston had even trained in England. Uh, Langford Warren, had, his training was in England, and Sturgis, too, had trained in England. This younger group of architects thus was predisposed to admire the work of Henry Vaughan, whose work you see here. Vaughan um, had, um, uh, had worked for Bodley in England, so that wasn't just a random choice I gave you. He had worked for Bodley in England and moved to Boston in 1881. The architects here in Boston were won over by Vaughan's English Gothic Chapel at St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, dating from 1886 to 94. Now keep in mind, they often exhibited together um, through the Boston Society of Architects. They showed their renderings, elevations. So even, when a, even though a building wasn't necessarily completed, 1886, if the design was done and shown, the architects were looking at it. And Cram in particular writes about how they saw this chapel at St. Paul's. They saw Vaughan's work generally. And it was like, wow, this is what we should be doing. And they scooted. They left Richardson and Richardsonian behind for um, this English Gothic revival. Ralph Adams Cram is probably best known as the champion, but not the only one, but he is recognized as the champion for the Gothic revival in the late 19th century. 
His church, his design, with his partners, we do not want to forget the partners, Charles Wentworth and Bertram Goodhue, uh, is, it's All Saints Church, located in the Ashmont neighborhood of Dorchester, dates from 1891 to 94. So Richardson's dead, 1886, it's just a few years, and there's Henry Vaughan, and then, boom, uh, we shift and we go into this Gothic revival. They really move quickly, they turn around. And um, we see how it's um, based on the English parish church type. This was what the English architects were promoting. This is what the Boston architects embraced, um, specifically the church designs of the 15th century. That was, as Cram said, where Gothic left off before it was overwhelmed by the rise of the Renaissance. So let's go back to Gothic with the idea and revive it and keep going to create a modern Gothic style. The stone I want to comment on, because there was also this idea coming out of England, remember we're wanting to design buildings that affirm English heritage, and then within regions to use materials that are regional uh, as opposed to something imported. And so here at All Saints, uh, Cram chose to use, and, and he writes about this, I'm not just making it up or just observing it, he actually writes about it, uh, granite that's quarried on um, the south of Boston, uh, Weymouth, it's called seam face granite, and it's variegated stone uh, that goes from kind of rusty color to gray to um, yellow ochre. So it's this mixed color, and I think for those of us who've lived in New England any period of time, we recognize it and we know that this is, this is just what you see around here from turn of the 20th century buildings. But um, it was uh, uh, promoted certainly by Cram and his colleagues in the Society of Arts and Crafts. Now the decoration, reflects this collaboration that has been so encouraged uh, with um, art between, among architects and craftsmen. And, and uh, All Saints was certainly enhanced by the artisans and the crafts products that would be associated with the Society of Arts and Crafts in Boston. The oak paneling that you see in the chancel of All Saints is from the firm of Irving and Casson, and it has charming figures in the, um, I would call it a band or frieze at the top upper edge of the paneling, um, carved by Johannes Kirschmeier. The stone Rerodos uh, was the work of uh, John Evans and other um, sculptors in his firm. And there, was a stained there is a stained glass window in the church by Harry Goodhue, uh, who is Bertram Goodhue's brother. Um, later decoration at All Saints includes Gruby tile as well as glass by Charles Connick. Uh, Connick would become a president of the Society of Arts and Crafts. But all of these artisans were involved in as founders or as members of the Society of Arts and Crafts. This is like Society of Arts and Crafts. This is Arts and Crafts Boston at All Saints. Now, All Saints presents a presented a standard for church design in Boston and even across the United States for the next 30 to 40 years. This church type has a very long run. Um, here I'm showing you East Weymouth Congregational Church. I chose it deliberately because this is the design of C. Howard Walker. So it's not just Cram. <laughs> there are a lot of other architects that are designing these buildings. Um, and it dates from 1904 to 5. Uh, it's a much less, much less elaborate version of the type uh, that you see uh, at All Saints in Ashmont. And I like it partly because it's just so conventional or so typical of the kind of church we see in, um, the, in New England, especially in the Boston area. It has that square perpendicular tower with the little battlements, and it has, um, it's built with the uh, Weymouth or uh, the Weymouth seam-faced um, granite. 
Another example is the Third Congregational Church in Cambridge. It's on Harvard Street, I believe, um, or what's left of it. Just the tower now survives. Um, and I brought this one in because it's the work of Newhall and Blevins. Remember, uh, I mentioned how Lewis Newhall was so involved with Boston Architectural, uh, Boston Architectural Club, really, and the college. Um, 1911. Uh, it was more expensive than the Weymouth Church. It has uh, tracery in the windows, as you see, and inside it was enhanced, or it was enhanced by elaborate truss work, another feature that was favored by the architects. Uh, I also think it's interesting that it was a congregational church, and even when clients were congregational, which remember that's descending from the Puritans, those very simple white churches, that the clients, uh, these church clients started saying, no, no, we don't want that. We want a, we want a Gothic parish church, uh, seen face granite. We want the whole works. And then they, when they would be, when they finished, they also included stained glass windows. So it was if, uh, the, the style overwhelmed everything else uh, and gained such popularity that even the congregational churches, even Unitarian churches, were designing these Gothic revival design, um, churches. Cram thought it was very odd. He tried to promote a different approach, but nope, we want a Gothic revival. Gothic revival also became the style of choice for many New England campuses. Here you see Boston College, um, and, and the focus is Gasson Hall. The work is uh, Mc, uh, Charles McGinnis and his partner Timothy Walsh from 1909 to 13. The source of these uh, campus buildings, again, is the late English Gothic or the uh, perpendicular period architecture. And it's especially interesting to see that at Boston College, where the whole school's mission was really educating really Irish Catholic boys, uh, young men, that they had relocated their campus from south, um, the south end. They bought a brand new open piece of land, ran a competition. It's uh, won by McGinnis and Walsh in 1909. And what did they design? English perpendicular. Now, this might look normal to us. Actually, it does look normal to me. It still looks normal. And yet, when you understand, there was an Irish um, arts and crafts movement, and what they were designing was a Hiberno, um, Hiberno um, Romanesque style, meaning round arches uh, with those zigzag or chevron designs and so on. Um, so this is, this is English, and this would have been read as English, um, not Irish. And yet, that was seen as the way you design if you're in New England. That's what made sense. So the um, other thing that's interesting about Gasson Hall is the way that it um, was designed with a, a lofty tower to, to organize and coordinate this entirely new campus, brand new campus, and here's this giant tower. And um, it's not a tower over a chapel. This is not a church design. So yes, we did see perpendiculars like St. Paul's School. I showed you that. But now it's organizing an entire campus. And this would be so um, incredibly influential. Uh, again, think of these architects as sitting side by side around the table at the Society of Arts and Crafts meetings. They know each other from the Boston Society of Architects. And Gasson Hall and the design for Boston College is uh, the competition's won in early 1909. Cram at this time is working on a design for the graduate college um, complex at Princeton. And he's finally it gets funding. And in the summer of 1909, he's got it. Everything's going. And they know exactly where they're going to land. And he designs this giant tower for the um, graduate college. And then finally, uh, um, R. Clipston Sturgis in the fall. And you can see it in the 
journals here at the Athenaeum. He's out there in Watertown with the clients to design a new campus for the Perkins School, and he's sketching away his first meetings with his clients, and there's a perpendicular tower. So it's a sequence. You can map it out step by step through the year of 1909 as this perpendicular tower idea for the organizing feature of a campus is taking hold. Ultimately, Day and Clowder would design a perpendicular tower for Wellesley, and the ultimate to me is um, James Gamble Rogers' design for Harkness Tower at Yale. It's a feature that takes root across the United States. It's an American campus feature. Now, our region's colonial and federal buildings also attracted attention. They, were they came to be appreciated as pre-industrial. Our counterparts to the English Gothic buildings. Early on in this kind of rediscovery, new appreciate, renewed appreciation, let's call it, or maybe it's new appreciation for the um, colonial past, um, were the um, architects, both Charles McKim and Robert Peabody, both contributed to what becomes the colonial revival. In his design at, um, of Johnston Gate at Harvard, 1889, again, really, we're in the 80s, back to the 80s, Charles McKim responded to the red brick survivors in the yard. I really like this building. This is 246 Beacon Street here in the Back Bay, the work of Peabody and Stearns, designed in 1886. Richardson dies in 86. This is being designed. Most of the Back Bay, if you at this time, this year, mid-1880s, it's still Richardsonian Romanesque. But here is Robert Peabody, Peabody and Stearns, designing this colonial revival um, townhouse. It's so simple, and yet, and it looks so normal <laughs> to us, again. But this is quite a, a turn, a change in direction and design um, from the 1880s. By the 1890s, the architects were designing scholarly, colonial, and federal-style buildings. Warren took this approach for a new town hall in Lincoln, Massachusetts. It reflects his admiration for Charles Bullfinch, the, the city's leading architect of the federal period, 1891 to 92, today known as Bemis Hall. Warren's office was located, again, at 9 Park Street just where the Society of Arts and Crafts had its offices and their showroom on the first floor. Um, it was originally, some of you may know this, a house that was designed by Charles Bullfinch. So here's Warren arriving at work every day, and he's going into his office, a building he knew was designed by Bullfinch, looking up at the state house and then on to work. And you can very well appreciate how he designed um, this uh, town hall for Lincoln, a reflection of his familiarity, his very close familiarity with the work of Bullfinch. Now, as with Gothic revival buildings, colonial revival buildings could benefit from skilled craftsmen. Here you see doors with bullseye glass, it's hand-blown, um, transom, a transom window with leaded glass and carved Corinthian capitals. The architects also became involved with historic preservation. Again, in this, they were following the trend in England. William Morris was a vocal champion for preservation. He rallied with his friends to preserve England's medieval monuments and Morris led in the founding of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in 1877. 
So again, we think of people like Norton. He's picking up these ideas. Preserve the past. Don't destroy the past. What are the best buildings of the past? And uh, he, but many of the architects too, were un understood this idea of preservation. And in fact, Boston Society of Architects, uh, they were raising money for the pre restoration, the pr preservation and restoration of Peterborough Cathedral. So they were very much aware of what was going on in England too. And transferred this advocacy to our buildings, our colonial and federal period buildings. Buildings. During the second half of the 19th century, Bostonians were watching the loss of some of our most historic and architecturally distinguished buildings. Many of you know uh, that in 1863, there was a battle that was waged to preserve the John Hancock House, uh, but it was eventually demolished. On the other hand, the campaign to preserve the Old South Meeting House was a victory, that from the 1870s. Less well known is the fact that in 1893, Bullfinch's State House was targeted for demolition. And this was really serious. It wasn't just like a random thought. It almost uh, went down. Several of the architects who had become prominent in the Society of Arts and Crafts entered the fray with Robert Andrews. He's the guy set for his, <laughs> to go on his, jump on his boat. Robert Andrews was in the lead. Ultimately, it came down to a vote of the legislature, and it was a clear cliffhanger, um, but the legislature did ultimately decide to vote for the preservation of the building. It was a vote in 1896, so this was three years of battling over what would we do with the State House. And they finally decided to preserve it, and Andrews was one of the architects who oversaw its restoration. The architects were all uh, drawn to many preservation projects. R. Clipston Sturgis, who was involved with the preservation of Old North Church, um, which was restored in 1912-14. The architects also rebuilt early houses as residences as well as institutions. They loved these houses. If they could find a colonial or federal building and rebuild it, that was like, oh, wow, this is, this is terrific. So um, the historic John Ball House um, in Concord dates from 1761. It was rebuilt by Lois Lilly Howe for the Concord Art Association. Over time, the architects came to accept a restrained classicism too, inspired by the early, emphasize early, Italian Renaissance. What they rejected, it wasn't everything. It wasn't every revival of style in the 19th century. What they rejected was French or Beaux-Arts architecture. That was too alien. <laughs> and so it's foreign. We don't do Spanish. We don't do German. It was, it was French. And also, the other part, it was too ostentatious, too florid. And, and this isn't me talking. This is too New York. <laughs> Some of the designs that they favored were closer in style to what we today would call arts and crafts, mainly marked by the simplified forms. Spare in approach, not, again, heavily ornamented. And yet they, too, uh, alluded to English architecture. Again, this is Charles McGinnis, who designed that very English, perpendicular um, Boston College campus. This is McGinnis's own house, located in Brookline, which dates from 1920. Um, English, it seems, it sort of recalls the English cottage and its irregular massing. The choice of stucco was an English um, choice, and the red tile is a flat red tile, um, favored, certainly, in English architecture. 
simple and yet it's embellished when you actually see the house in an overview like this you don't get it but inside and out with beautiful fine ornaments there's one carved capital that separates the living room from the library uh, which each face of the each face of the capital is dedicated to one of the McGinnis family's four children there's stained glass in uh, uh, stained and lighted glass as well as iron hardware the, one of the children, Elizabeth, um, was all alive when the owners bought, the current owners bought the house, and she did say that the hardware is the work of Frank Koroluski, another art, um, uh, one of the artisans involved in the Society of Arts and Crafts. For the most part, um, insofar as architectural styles were concerned then, the architects were conservative. They rejected the new directions in European architecture, the new directions, meaning Art Nouveau, another option, not here, so we're not doing everything here, we're, we're doing a selection of styles, um, Art Nouveau and um, Viennese Secession. Yet, if they were not adventurous stylistically, the architects were certainly forward-looking, committed to addressing the needs of the 20th century and the 20th century society. They were committed to working through ideal plans, plans that worked for 20th century needs, such as how do you design an apartment building? There was a growing middle and upper middle professional class. People wanted to live somewhere, not necessarily in the city in row houses, and they weren't necessarily in country houses, uh, just as today. They want to live somewhere, somewhere convenient. And uh, this idea of the apartment building was something that they worked through. Uh, Richmond Court, uh, located on Beacon Street in Brookline, was the work of Cram, Goodhue, and Ferguson, and dates from 1898. It was designed like a Tudor manor, but it's an apartment building, organized around a lawn and a fountain. Distinguished really by its interior planning with the um, close attention giving to, given to the separation of public and private spaces. If uh, Cram does get credit, I think, for this type, uh, the person who really takes it and runs with it is Lewis Newhall and his partnership with Albert Blevins. Uh, Burton Halls is one of the, I think, most lovely of this, uh, finest of the, um, the example, uh, located in Cambridge, uh, 1909. Sometimes the apartment uh, buildings, complexes, are Tudor revival, sometimes colonial revival. Remember, it's a small array of um, stylistic choices that were seen as acceptable. But in terms of plan, organized around a court, offering light to the interior, but also a bit of nature, something, another theme that I've not really touched on, but that was so important to arts and crafts theorists in England and in the United States. A little bit of planting, a little bit of lawn, a strip of lawn, um, just to get a little bit of um, nature into the, build, into, the, um, into the complex. Campus architecture reflected uh, the growth of uh, higher education in the United States, which is burgeoning at this time, and uh, also new developments in higher education. Pierce Hall at Har on the Harvard campus uh, is the work of George Shaw in partnership with Henry Hunnewell and dates from 1900. Conservative looking, looks like a Georgian manor house, but it's for the study of engineering, and it was outfitted in the uh, ways to serve the um, academic disciplines that were required a lot of technical um, support. Let's just say that. Um, they had turbines in the buildings. They had to study engineering with, um, it had to be fireproof, had to carry great weights, and so on, and they were attentive to those demands. Uh, William Putnam and Alan Cox designed many campus buildings at Amherst and at Mount Holyoke. 
the uh, young architects first came together, interesting for our, where we are today, uh, to enter a competition for a new design for the Boston Athenaeum. They won the competition for a new building um, in 1902. I'm glad that this building was renovated, but the unhappy outcome was the firm of Putnam and Cox flourished. At Mount Holyoke, located in South Hadley, Massachusetts, uh, their first project was Skinner Hall, dating from 1916. Elizabethan re revival was consistently used for Mount Holyoke, whereas colonial revival chosen for Amherst College. Skinner Hall was a lecture building at Mount Holyoke. Again, that might, from today's perspective, be uh, yeah, so what? But the whole lecture system was really taking hold, and the um, uh, electives, and I should say elective system, was taking hold, and the need for these uh, lecture classrooms, seminar rooms, and so on um, was growing, and that's the purpose of Skinner Hall. Elsewhere on the campus, uh, they designed a couple of science buildings as well as dormitories as the campus grew. The architects were very committed to designing public school buildings. Um, West Roxbury High School, uh, later Jamaica Plain High School, you see on the screen, uh, was the work of Andrews, Jakes, and Rantoul. It dates from 1898 to 1901. It was as up-to-date and as modern and maybe even extravagant from today's school building perspective as anything you could imagine. Um, it was outfitted with science labs. It even had a platform on the roof um, for a telescope for the study of astronomy. Uh, they were preparing, in schools like this, they were preparing the students for uh, college. And the, the buildings were um, just very, they were well-designed, well-considered, and um, they, they were models, really, for national school building design. Uh, R. Clipston Sturgis, in fact, chaired Boston's uh, schoolhouse department. He was appointed to it. It was just a three-member department, so this isn't like a lot of people. And he was chairman of it when it was created. And when the schoolhouse department was created, uh, he and his colleagues visited schools across the United States and published their conclusions and recommendations in the uh, national press. So again, Boston was in the lead, and these architects were in the lead in identifying how to design the best uh, school buildings for the 20th century. Now, like their English counterparts, many of the architects wanted to serve the social needs of the day. And I'm talking about English counterparts in the um, arts and crafts movement in England. In, here in Boston, they designed model housing for the poor, they designed community centers. They designed bathhouses. They designed um, for locations in the North End and the South End where the immigrant populations were um, settling. Now, you may know that Morris and many of the English architects um, had become socialists. On the other hand, most of Boston's arts and crafts leaders were not socialists. In 1903, there was a battle that raged within the Society of Arts and Crafts over the role of socialism. And by 1903, um, or by the end of the year, it was firmly rejected. This was when Langford Warren became the president. Yet the leaders within the Society of Arts and Crafts, including the architects, adhered to progressive era concerns and promoted them. Modern building materials and technologies were embraced as well. This might look like a stucco house. It's not. It's a concrete house. 
Um, the concrete, this is the work of Warren and Smith. Um, Warren, in partnership with, his, uh, with Frank Patterson Smith, it's a house in Winchester. Uh, it's the Harrison Chadwick house, and it dates, or I'm sorry, Everett Chadwick, Harrison's his son, who also was there, um, dating from 1909. Um, the concrete was poured into forms. The brick is not structural. The brick is decorative. Um, concrete poured into forms. There's a heavy aggregate in the concrete, and then the forms were removed, and um, the surfaces were abraded. Uh, they first experimented with this, actually it was Warren, experimented with this uh, on the piers at Soldier's Field. And then when they saw it, was, it would work in New England, there was a question about how the, this would hold up in the weather. Uh, they kept going with it, designing buildings for um, the athletic field, Soldier's Field at Harvard, and then working with it in other contexts such as this house. Perkins School for the Blind, dating from 1909 to 1912, also illustrates the architect's acceptance of concrete. Whether hardened into precast stones, another approach, or poured into forms and reinforced with steel. Again, um, it's located in Watertown, Massachusetts, 1909 to 12. Concrete embedded, um, it, concrete is, has the brick embedded in it. Uh, the bricks just to, uh, is decorative again to soften the effect of the concrete. Uh, the sculpture is also concrete. First, the sculpture would have been modeled uh, and it was supplied by John Evans and his, comp um, his, his studio, I guess you'd say, uh, and then it was cast. More obvious when you see a slide like this, you can tell that the tower is concrete, poured concrete uh, with some con precast concrete ornament. Inside, you see uh, this is the Howe Building at Perkins School campus, that the uh, concrete piers uh, are embedded with groovy tile, uh, which provides ornament. Example, the tile. Uh, they're in writing about the Perkins School, they're published articles, and uh, it's described how the ornament, in this case the rabbit, is raised, So, and the tile is actually located at a place in the pier where the children could actually feel, touch the tile, and feel the raised uh, image. Uh, also, groovy tile with raised, uh, raised patterns uh, was located at the intersection of corridors at Perkins School so that the children, when they were using um, rods, could feel that they were at an intersection and know to turn. So the tile had a functional purpose as well. And then another um, very popular technology, new ma uh, material for the period, popular in Boston, was Guastavino tile, which you see in the quarter here at Perkins School. It's a structural tile used early on at the Boston Public Library. These 12 Boston architects then designed buildings across the United States, from Florida to Texas to California, even Hawaii. Several were involved in education at Harvard, at MIT, Boston Architectural Center, College, and the Museum School. And thus their ideas were disseminated through their teaching. They also were influential through their many publications. When we investigate the arts and crafts movement in America, we find that Boston architects played a major role. They collaborated with craftsmen in the country's largest arts and crafts organization, the Society of Arts and Crafts Boston. They produced handsome buildings embellished by sculpture, tile, carved wood, and stained glass. They favored styles that affirmed an Anglo-American heritage. They also played an important role in preserving our 
regions, historic architecture, including some of our best loved buildings today, the State House, Old North Church. At the same time, the architects designed buildings to support the needs of a modern society. Indeed, many of their buildings, town halls, churches, apartment buildings, schools such as Perkins School for the Blind, so many of the buildings that we know are still in service, still addressing many of the same hopes and aspirations held by the architects, the craftsmen, and their clients a century ago. Thank you. Thank you.